Swillians, if you love and respect your surfboards, and I'm talking pure love, then you must protect them. And nobody protects surfboards better than the official hardware and accessories partner of all Swillians, Ocean and Earth. Doesn't matter what you kick, shorties, fishes, logs, sups, O&E have over 30 different types of board covers to keep your precious protected. Day sleeves, travel covers, singles, doubles, coffins, wheels. These board bags are light, functional and built to last. Good enough for Owen Wright. Good enough for Ryan Callanan. Good enough for Tyler Wright. You know it's primo gear. And it's one of those presents you just never see coming. Imagine getting an O&E board bag in your Chrissy windsock. Mad. Go to oceanandearth.com to scope the whole range today. Ain't That Swell presents Crawlords. Today's guest needs no introduction, but I'm going to give him one anyway. Martin Daly. Wow. It's hard to imagine what surfing would look like if it weren't for the work of Martin and his merry crew traversing the Indonesian archipelago by boat in the 1980s, 90s and beyond. What he and his mates found in the Mentawise, in Java, in the Pacific, it changed surfing as we knew it. It launched an armada of copycat surf charter and surf camp operations that is today an industry worth hundreds of millions of dollars, and the photos, footage, and folklore that came out of his discoveries played no small part in making surfing the mass appeal pastime it is today. As he'll tell you, however, if it wasn't him, it would have been someone else out there discovering all that gold. But fuck, I'm glad it was Martin. What I came to learn over the course of this convo was that he is a blue-collar Aussie battler, done good. Just another working class grinder with plenty of go in him who followed his nose, chased his dream and worked his fucking ring out to string together one of the great lives ever lived. One that in my opinion puts him right up there with this country and in fact history's great explorers. There's so much wisdom in this man and in the life that he's led. In ways, his story reminded me of surfing's other great renaissance man, Ivan Schoenard, who started Patagonia. Both of them hard-working, honest, blue-collar men who just wanted to surf, be free, and be out there in the raw magic of Mother Earth. The internet connection was a bit janky at times, and we had to take a break in the middle of this for Martin to attend to some business. But man, what a moment this is for the Swillians. Martin fucking Daly. Are you kidding me? Mate, one of the great Australian adventurers from a, a country that's produced a, a few great Australian adventurers, mate. You, you're right up there. Uh, how does it feel? What does it look like from way up there, Martin? Or way out there? Um, oh, life is good. Um, I'm in Hawaii um, and uh, the surf's good. And I haven't been surfing, which is stupid, but... I'll try and get this boat out of here. Um, we were in Koala Basin on the South Shore, right down Ala Moana downtown. Um, and 
yeah, I've got no complaints whatsoever. <laughs> what's the plan? So, uh, yeah, what's this next chapter looking like? So during the during the pandemic, um, my beloved boat, the Indies Trader 2 or the Sea Ray, uh, burnt down. Um, I had a young South African engineer that put an unregulated battery charger on overnight and went away and came back and the boat was gone. Exploded with a hydrogen explosion during the middle of the night, I think. Because batteries gas off hydrogen. If you put them in a closed space and overcook them, you can make gas in them spark of a battery terminal, a bit of a squall came through apparently, both started rocking, sparked, boom, see you later. So I bought a boat to replace it and it's a big upgrade. Um, it's a American built Hatteras sport fishing boat. And myself, another young Aussie bloke, uh, Kurt uh, Pierce, we've been slaving away at this thing for about two months now. Just fixing everything, making sure everything's a tickety boo, so that we can uh, do the ten day crossing to the Marshall Islands from here. Right, yeah. So Hawaii to the Marshall Islands, uh, that takes you through Indo, is that right? More or less, or you can go direct. No, you it's, go it's, direct. Not, it's it's nothing. It's just there's one little place called Johnson Atoll, which is a which is a chemical weapons dump for the US. Wow, that's on the way, and that's about it. That's about right. 700, 650 out. And then we'll go past there, maybe maybe pull in and, and uh, wash the boat down and square things away, um, then keep on going for the other uh, sort of 1,300 miles to, to the Marshalls. Okay. And how's life going for you up there? How much of the year are you spending there? Um, yeah. Well, I, I was in the – I just came back from the Mints before this um, – it was awesome as usual, and uh, uh, I sort of haven't been home for a while. I wasn't allowed to go home during the pandemic. I got stranded um, uh, in the in the Solomon Islands. Um, it's a really good story. I, uh, you know, it all went down. I guess it was in March in two thousand and twenty, and uh, we were in a place called called uh, Bougainville. And the guests that were on board with me, or mates, or whatever you want to call them, uh, shipmates, they got a bit antsy. They were Americans, and they wanted to bail. So they headed out, and I was a bit short in the charter, so I thought, oh, I'll go down to Solomon's and check it out. And um, I left, and Papua New Guinea, which is on Bougainville's part of Papua New Guinea, yeah. they closed the border behind me. Couldn't go back if I wanted, if I wanted to. Wow. And then the, same, the next day, I was out at sea, the Solomon Isles closed its borders, so I became pretty well stateless. So I was sitting out and um, trying to figure what to do. So I didn't have a lot of fuel, so I went to Honiara in the Solomon Islands and parked out front of the uh, the president's office. <laughs> Try to claim insanity. <laughs> yeah, hang a big banner off the side That's of your boat. Let me in. Well, I, was, I had some mates down there and I was really trying to, you know, they were lobbying for me and one thing and the other. And we're slowly going through our, all our fuel with the generator. And we're there for two weeks, sitting on anchor, waiting for a decision. And, uh, yeah, so uh, eventually um, Mr. Sogavari decided that he was going to let me in personally. Um, I guess he's annoyed at looking at me all day, waving at him. <laughs> and... Uh, and we just about to run out of fuel, which meant no food, no nothing, no refrigeration. Um, 
Yeah, so no water. So um, so I went, we, we, we fueled up real quick, uh, which was pretty stoked, and I drove to the agent's office, and uh, I'm driving to the agent's office, and I noticed it's getting a bit windy. And um, driving on the coast of Guadalcanal along the, along, the, along the shoreline, I got to the office, and uh, it's getting really windy, and I watched a barge wash up on the beach next to us. I'm going, geez, that's not too good. Then the phone rings. It's my captain going, hey, boss, we just snapped our anchor chain. It's getting really bad. We're washing towards the beach. So I said, I think I've got to go. And, um, yeah, it's a long story, but I ended up driving back. Wind got up really, really strong and uh, got to the boat, and there was four lines of white water on the beach where I was supposed to get on on the tin boat. Wow. And uh, so I found a little. You want me to continue with the story, or, Mate, or absolutely? Uh, I'm endlessly fascinated by yeah. uh, what you have to put up with in in a life at sea. So, mate, go for your life. All right. So, so yeah. So um, it's howling now, and there's I'm watching all these other boats floundering, and there's a thing called the Breakwater Cafe in Honiara. And it's got a bit of a, a lee, and so I talked my Indonesian boat guy. Uh, by the time I'm up to the to the the uh, wharf, I got hold of my, my, my skipper again on the on the H, on the radio, the handheld radio, and he said, oh, "I'm okay. Just the anchor broke, and I'm driving around." Yeah. All right. Thank goodness. That was good. Yeah. And um, so I said, "Send a guy in to pick me up." It was really like lines of white water breaking out past the breakwater, and I said, "Well, mate, you're going to have to get behind a wave and come in well. to get me." And uh, he was absolutely shitting himself, as you can imagine. Yeah. But he trusted me. He came in and zipped into the breakwater, got in there and punched it through a few ways to get out. And uh, then we headed off to a place called the Florida Islands, which is off Royal Canal, to yeah. get some shelter from this storm, which turned into a cyclone wow. without a warning. No way. And next thing you know, it's a whole armada of boats coming from Honiara across the Florida Islands. Um, they called this place called Tulagi. And we're driving along with them and it's looking like, what's going on, you know? And uh, the weather forecast got updated. They said, oh, it's going to blow 40 knots. I went, oh, okay. So we anchored. And then at about 10 o'clock at night, uh, we couldn't keep it. We couldn't stay in position. It was blowing too hard. There was deep water. Then we went right up this fjord. And then we up there all night with the engine going about 50% power on both engines into the wind with the anchor down, uh, juggling the, propell the, the throttles and the autopilot to stay in one place. And that was all night until in the morning. We woke up and we were okay. There was birds hitting the, hitting the windows and trees and all this crap. And uh, some bloke came out in the morning and said, you, know, you need to give me $300 for a mooring fee. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, <God. laughs> oh man that's too good yeah it's, it's remarkable yeah that was a good yeah, yeah remarkable in this day and age man yeah fuck what a hassle yeah. i didn't even think about how difficult it would have been for you guys at sea where you're constantly going between borders and nations and um into other well i couldn't come back borders. to australia because they had all my indonesian crew on board and there was no way that I was going to be able to sail into Cairns or towns or with Indonesians on board. The borders were closed in Australia. So I spent um, 10 months there. 
10 months. Uh, Just waiting. Where? In the whole Solomon Islands in Honiara. Wow, you're there the whole time. That's all like 10 months. That's fucking crazy, man. No way. But I had a really good time because I decided it was a good time to go look for Sir. Yeah, you found some waves. So yeah. I had the whole place. In the yeah. Of course you did. Yeah, well, maybe. Could have. Would have, <laughs> maybe. <laughs> Mate, oh, I love it. I love it. It's, um, yeah, it's crazy in this day and age with all the technology we've got that. Yeah, cyclones and, and, and just gnarly storms can blow up out of nowhere and, and catch entire yeah. fleets of ships yeah. off guard like that. What do you mean? It wasn't on my phone? Yeah, exactly. We And it, it makes me think, yeah, exactly. It makes me think like about back in the day when you were, you know, starting out in this caper, um, both in, in the salvage diving and the, the surf exploration, how fucking cowboy it must have been at times. How much better it was. Yeah, better. Because, you know. Slash more dangerous. Yeah. I don't know more dangerous, but more fun. You yeah. know, I mean, we had no navigation equipment before. Um, we just had a radar, which was pretty, you know, useful. You can see there's a hill 20 miles away. Um, but, yeah, I think, I think um, you know, we used to leave town back in the day and we'd watch Jakarta sail up behind us and go, freedom. No one's going to bother us for till we get back. <laughs> you know? And these days it's cool. Of course it's, um, you're just constantly in touch. Yeah. And video cameras and, you know, it's just, it's good in many ways. Yeah. But it's, you know, it's also has its downside. Yeah. I think the, I think the, I feel sorry for everyone today because I sort of, it seems like everything's so much more controlled now. Whereas back in the day in this, in the seventies and eighties, it felt like we could get away with almost anything mm. and no one was watching us. And mm. as soon as we, as soon as we were out of sight, out of mind, we could just, you know, do whatever we felt like and no one really cared. Now there's all the, all the fun police everywhere. Hmm. Yeah, it's fascinating, man. Like guys from your generation, like you were a step ahead of the authorities. Uh, they did not really have the technology or the the wherewithal to keep up with you. So you were just out there on your own, uh, you know, making it up as you went. Well, I mean, it wasn't like we were doing anything particularly terrible, but it was just nice to know that nobody was paying attention, really. And, uh, you know, um, some of my friends got in all sorts of trouble and, some didn't, and I was lucky. Luckily, I I um just managed to do a lot of surfing and diving and chasing, you know, chasing the dream. It is the dream. It's such a dream, but it's it's a dream that takes a lot to achieve. Like there's a lot of moving parts to that dream. It's there's a lot of skills and knowledge um that must be accumulated in a difficult environment. Like you know, it's not you can't go to TAFE and learn those skills. Um, that you acquired, like talk to us about. Well, I didn't have a clue what I was doing. <laughs> I never, I had no idea. I'm still back, still, still stumbling. Um, but yeah, no, I had a really good mentor back in the day. This guy called David Barnett, who was an absolute legend. And, uh, yeah, that was, uh, yeah, it's a, there's so much to go through, mate. I, I don't know where to start, but, uh, We'll start with Dave. Give, give us a bit of an insight. Yeah, give us a bit of insight into the kind of guy Dave was. Um, 
Yeah, I understand he was, uh, you know, uh, into the South not a very big guy, not a particularly um, intimidating presence, you know. Like when I first met him, he had curly black hair and a bit of a grey beard, and um, and he's got these really piercing blue grey eyes. And I'd say that Dave is the most intelligent person I've ever met. Um, he's one of those guys that's just got his shit together so hard, and then you just have to whenever he, whenever he talks, you listen, and. You know, he has this ability to look at things based on IQ and intelligence and doesn't think emotionally. Every decision that Barnett makes is a practical one, which makes him really dangerous because you know, he'll do whatever it takes to get made to be. And he'll start off with, you know, can I go through here? And it'll be a bulldozer in the end if you won't let him. Mm. And, he said, and then he'll go, okay, it's done. Now what do we do now? Next, next mission. And uh, I learned a lot from him and I think our organization runs with the with his idea or of how to do things or prag pragmatic attitude you know it's kind of don't be a victim don't 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 um make your own luck um don't give up you know keep on walking towards your objective all those all those good good things and He's been a. He's still. He's still around. He's still good. He's eighty-five and still a menace to society. Unreal. Yeah, I love that. Yeah. And what? So tell us a bit about what Dave actually did, and 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 any insights you have into you know his story as well. Growing up, Dave was born in Fiji, wow. um, I believe, and his dad was a, was a uh, salvage guy. Um, you know. Uh, the first time I went to Guadalcanal, I um, I was with Dave, and uh, in Solomon's, and this bloke walks up the road, up, up from a dinghy, up from an old yacht, this old fella, and he goes, "Dave," he goes, "What? You know, Dave Green?" Oh yeah, 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 because his name's Barnett. Yeah. It was an alias yet when he was apparently when he was um years ago anyway not to get too much into it um and uh he's, Dave, he said hey dave have you um ever ever been here before what are you doing here he says oh i'm giving martin a hand he says yeah i've been here once for a long long time ago he says oh when was that dave oh 1947 46 yeah when i was a little tacker my dad brought me here it was a bit different then like, you know, back the war had just finished. There wasn't much left here. It was all like stumpy stumps of trees and it was all open and there was no there was no greenery and and uh yeah, I had a great time. I met some local kid and we used to we got a Jeep going and we were going around uh getting all the all the ammunition out of the out of the uh, uh the big big holes in the other big craters. Yeah. For the M M M one Kirk carbines or something you're saying and uh and we were shooting out windows in buildings. It was awesome. <laughs> he said, that was the last time I was here. Right. I said, well, what are you doing? My dad was taking all the the iron off the off the buildings, the concert huts, and straightening it out and taking it back to Fiji and selling it. So that's wow. how Barnett started. He went to New Zealand, and he went, in New Zealand he was a surveyor, a land surveyor, and um, had a family and kids and everything else, and he was New Zealand spearfishing champion. 
Wow. Runner-up in Tahiti in 66 in the world titles. No way. Um, which in those days, being a Spiro was a big deal too. Wow. And, I can only um, imagine, man. Yeah, he's, a, he's quite a unit. And, wow. Um, and then he then he sort of went down to uh, – he got a bit of trouble in New Zealand, had to bail, um, and then went went uh, abalone diving in Streaky Bay. Yeah. Um, apparently, the, the guy that came at the wharf said, Dave, those records you made back in the 60s, they still stand, eh? Wow. Most ab in a day, most ab in a week, et cetera, et cetera. And um, – he uh, then he went up to New Guinea and did salvage work um, when it was still under the Australian authority, um, prop propellers and and stuff off old wrecks, uh, scrap metal, made a made a good amount of money, and then he then he came back and built the Indies Trader, um, was designed to do salvage work, and then he went back up to New Guinea, and then ran out of scrap or good or goodwill there, I think. And um, went to Indonesia, and he was in Bali in '72, and he salvaged the wreck at shipwrecks on Lombongan. Yeah, no. he took the prop and the condenser off that, <laughs> and then he went the other wreck in Tulumban. Oh, I went. Yeah, I should. We shouldn't get. Yeah, this is going to be listened to by too many people. Enough's yeah. enough. Yeah. Anyway, um, <laughs> we, don't, we don't want the wallopers <laughs> rocking up at his joint eighty-five. Take him away. It'd be awful. No. No, but uh, yeah, uh, yeah, we don't want to cause cause any difficulty for Dave. No, um, I love it though. It's um. Then I met him. Yeah, he was doing a salvage salvage work in, in Indonesia um, after he finished doing all the scrap work, and uh, I just ran into him in a pub and and through some mates, and we originally hit it off, and I went diving, and I went I went uh, sat diving in Japan, and came back from Japan. And he said, you want to do some real diving, mate? I said, well, what do you mean? How, I thought sat diving was real diving. He says, no, no. Let's go and do some, let's go and have some fun and do some real diving. So that was 1983 and been sort of hanging out with him ever since. Wow, man. So what was it like serving, you know, a, a diving apprenticeship under a guy with that kind of experience in the water? Gotcha. Yeah. Was that what was it, what, what was the experience? Yeah, oh, I was just saying. Um, you know, what was it like? Uh, but being a, a young up and coming seaman and and, and serving a, a diving apprenticeship and a, a boating apprenticeship alongside Dave. Like, you know, what kind of hard lessons did you learn? Uh, any baptisms of fire from him? Well, he was a good boss, um, and he. And he and he made it made me a a, a, a bad boss, I think, because um, I just imitate him as we do. And like Dave never ever gave you a compliment, right? I mean, it was his biggest compliment he gave you was silence. It wasn't giving you a hard time; you were killing it. You know, he was very very cutting, very smart, and he could say three or four words that just crush you, right? And we, we were just looking; we used to look up to him as a god, and. Uh, and then, you know, a couple of times he barked at me. I did things wrong. And, um, yeah, I don't, don't know what my point is, but um, it was a it was very, very – a lot of testosterone eh, in the diving industry, if you can imagine. A bunch of you blokes, Indo, surf, diving, nightlife. Um, yes, it was great. And Barnett was like our – 
like the like the sort of the penultimate uh, alpha guy, you know. And uh, we were just all we used to worship the Church of Barnett. Yeah, no, I can I can imagine. I mean, far out. The guy's a second generation seaman and salvage diver with, you know, world class diving experience. Uh, far out, man. He must have seemed like a god, like in your trade. So, I'll give you a good example of what he was like. The first job I did with him, I was on a, on a rig inspection of a drilling rig. And he, everyone else uses hose gear and fancy gear. Dave was back in the 60s somewhere with his diving equipment. And we had a hooker hose with a, with a CB regulator, right? A pair of fins and a mask. That was his commercial diving rig and a weight belt. So, I've got to do something on the bottom of this jacket. It was oil field platform. I dive in at 65 foot deep. And all of a sudden, I go, no air. No air. I go, oh, shoot. So I had to do a free ascent to the surface. I get to the surface. I go, hey, can I have some air? And he's standing there with my hose on the deck going, oh, yeah, you'll be all right. Fucking hell. That was his, that was his, like a, his test of whether I was going to survive or not. Yeah. Oh wow, that is too classic. And so, mate, take us back to uh, your early days too. Like, uh, you know, I understand you're from Sydney. Like, whereabouts did you grow up? And um, you know, tell us a bit about what your folks did for a living, stuff like that. Um, oh, I um, I was I was born when I was born. I was we living in Newport in Sydney, in Wallamatta Road, um, and. Uh, Dad was working locally in Narrabeen um, at a place called Coin Selectors or something. Um, Mum was a school teacher and uh, she was teaching, you know, Baron Joy High School or whatever. Uh, uh, all the different, all the different high school primary yeah. schools around Sydney. Classic. And um, had a pretty, had a pretty ordinary, good old-fashioned Aussie upbringing on the beach with the beach umbrellas and the surfer planes and the kickboards and so you know standing up on the cool lights and you know you pretty well the classic east coast aussie upbringing yeah yeah oh that's classic so lucky, lucky, lucky to be brought up in the luckiest part of the lucky country yeah and so you know when did this thirst for adventure take hold um you know who like yeah what set you on this path um I went to NIAS. Well, so I wanted to be. I wanted. I didn't know what I wanted to do. You know, I had all sorts of jobs, everything you can imagine, from lollipop man on the main roads to um, meat works. Didn't last very long there. Couldn't couldn't stand peeling intestines for a living. Um, barman, changing tires, uh, working on a farm, cutting down pine trees, thinning pine trees, planting pine trees. You know, just bumming around surfing. And I think I had 54 jobs before I figured out what I wanted to do. Um, and uh, commercial diving, because my dad had owned some commercial divers. And my mate, my mate Jeff Chitty, he um, he got put me onto it. He found this dive school in New Zealand that guaranteed you a job if you paid them three and a half grand to do their dive school. So we both did that. And um, uh, I ended up 
going up to going up to Singapore. Jeff went up first, and um, I I must have pissed somebody off at, at dive school because they wrote that I was no good. I couldn't get a job, so I landed in Singapore with seventy bucks a one way ticket, and uh, ended up getting a job anyway uh, with another company, not the one that was pre arranged, and um, rest is like went from completely busted up and broke to um, oil field salary, staying at five-star hotels, flying around business class, and yeah, it was, uh, worked out pretty good. And then oh. Bali and the ads and all that. And yeah. At the time when it was – and, you know, I was in the ads in uh, 1981, I think it was, and it's crowded. Mm. You know, it's just like 30 guys out. Um, and it was a hell place to get to. I got the you know, classic story. I got malaria, nearly died, um, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And, but I was there and this hell trip to get there. And I went, there's got to be surf everywhere around here. And all the guys, you know, how sort of like sheep go, no, no, mate, this is, a, this is it, mate. You know, Bali and here, uh, that's, that's where all the surf is. You know. I said, well, how about south of here? They said, oh, not really. Which is the mentor-wise, right? Yeah. And about North of here, oh, yeah, there's a, there's a big left on it out the sea called the Hanakos or something. And they said, I said, well, I've got to get a boat. So I went back from that trip after I, after I nearly died in, in um, Penang with the malaria. Went back, got together with Chitty and my mate Roscoe, and we said, let's get a boat. And we tried to get this big old concrete yacht, you know? And, um, and that didn't work out. So, um, geez, there's just so much to go through. Um, oh, sorry, I love I'm it. Mate, around off, off the no, it, mate, there's no, that's perfect. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm riveted. So, yeah, just blundering around trying to figure out where the waves were, um, how to get there. And, you know, sort of everyone sort of sees the Indies trader like, you know, oh, yeah. Quicksilver, Rip Curl, blah, blah, blah. It just happened. You know, we were just, you know, I got a boat and went to the Meadowized and everything was just laid out, laid on. Mate, the story about how we got there was like full groveling, scamming, figuring it out, just loathing, um, taking risks, lots of risks, and having a determination to do it. And, you know, and I think with anything, because this to, uh, to tell people how to get to their objectives, it's just make sure you got one and then keep on walking towards it. And everything you do is about that objective and it's amazing. You'll always get there because it's really, really weird for me. Everything I've ever wanted to do, I've achieved. Mm. I'm running out of things I want to do. And that's really, I don't I don't understand how I've done it, but I think determination is the, is the, uh, is the, is the uh, key to it. Yeah. Mate, that's wild. Yeah. yeah, you know, when you think about it, you're just this blue-collar kid, you know, average upbringing, and you set out on a journey, and you just kind of, you're following your nose, and, and bit by bit, you know, you're coming into contact with the right people at the right time. Dave Barnett, the fucking, probably the number yeah. one guy in the world in his industry. Um, you're his apprentice. Yeah. You know, it's not an easy life. You, you've, like, cop and serves, and it's hard yakka. Oh, but, mate, we have some fun? Yeah, and it couldn't have been better, you know. Th those hard taskmasters. Sorry, mm. yeah, you got. I can sit here and tell you bullshit stories for months. 
I bet. But that'd be all true. Yeah, mate, yeah. I, I can't fathom it because having obviously been up in that part of the world, I, I, I look at the amount of hazards and, and, and just the, you know, you, you're in Indo, this insanely corrupt place. There's earthquakes, tsunamis, the reefs and bottom contours are changing all the time. There's constant corruption and bullshit. And you're out there trying to navigate that world as a Westerner in a boat. And I just think about like how you and your generation, well, you in particular, blaze those trails and, and how fucking dangerous it must have been and and, and hard yakka like um, we were just too stupid to realize how dangerous it was mate. <laughs> yeah. we're just blunting around <laughs> full of testosterone and and the, the thirst and and we knew it was good like you know me and jeff and roscoe this was like three of us we used to hang around and surf together and we were driving around sumatra you know in the early 80s right and we're going hey how good is this i said I think we're the luckiest people in the world. You know, we used to say to each other, we are the top 0.0000000001% of humans on the planet right now. We're smashing it. This is just epic. Right? It wasn't that we were blunting around stupid. We actually knew what we were doing and knew how good it was and still just the same, really. Like my son is out there today. He's calling me, Dad, I'm frothing. Why? He says, I'm a telescope. It's eight to 10 feet. I got one from the top all the way through. Got any photographs to prove it? Yeah. Mate, you should see his photographs of my boy this one today. He's just barrel lord. I'm wow. so fucking proud of him. Wow. Yeah. yeah. Mate, chip off the old block. Yeah. It's so rad, man. Hang on. I'll, I'll show, you. I'll show yeah. you a quick shot of today. Give us a squeeze. Hang on. Too classic. Technology. Let's see if we can fucking might master it. I don't know if you'll be able to see it, but we'll give it a go. No, I should be able to. Can you see anything? Yeah. No way. It looks like fucking pipeline. Wow. No way. That's fresh. Oh, yeah. That's hours old. Oh, you Wow! Oh, look at that! That that could be freaking G Land back in the uh the golden age. Telescopes, uh, yeah. Martin, and, anyway, it's and, and pumping for now. Yeah, cooking, and and so that's a joint you yeah. actually found, right? No, it's my mate Danny Marjorie found it. Right. Um, and you want to know why it's called telescopes? Well, I can I kind right. of uh, imagine. What's the okay, reason? Okay, what do you reckon it's called, Pills? Well, it looks like you're looking well, through one when you're standing in, in that thing like your son is. No. He was there with his brother, Martin. They had a Zodiac. I mean, he was there a year before me, right, in the mints. Yep. Um, I, I had to go to the Philippines, and he kind of, buddy, we were looking for ways together and frothing over it, and he beat me up there, the bastard, right? And he was just fully feraled out with a, with a Zodiac and a, and his mate Pickles Lips. Anyway, so they were there, and there was a West Cross swell, and it was going whoop, 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 telescoping down the line. That's why they call it telescopes. Right. So, so I believe. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, I, can, I can see that. Wow. Um, and so, yeah, oh, that's so cool, man, seeing your son in a tube like that, um, you know, after having. Oh, mate, I'm just dropping on. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, and just you know, on just, the family, 
life, man. Like, uh, you know, how did you manage to, 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 to raise a family while doing this, this job and being away at sea so much? Well, Jakarta was good because we got help. My wife had, you know, t- uh, a maid for each kid and a gardener and a driver and all that sort of stuff. Um, so, you know, I mean, I'm going to get massive of this, but I never actually changed the nappy. <laughs> yeah, the Thumbantu. How good are they? Oh, I actually never got around to doing one. But anyway, um, <laughs> and uh, <laughs> you are going to get oh, massive. We better get killed. Yeah, I'm going to get slaughtered. I'll be waiting for them at the airport with knives. Anyway, <laughs> um, and uh, you know, we just like what. It just happened, mate. You know, like I didn't really intend to get married, to have kids. I didn't get. To, I had my daughter when I was forty. Well, my wife had my daughter when she when I was forty, mm. and um, uh, it was that bit of it wasn't really uh, what I was planning on, being a dad or having a family, and it happened. And it was one of the best things that ever happened to me, really. Uh, wife's pretty tolerant. She she got her own life. You know, I think she. Um, we spent a lot of time together in the early days, but lately, with I didn't see her for two and a half years during the pandemic. Um, she couldn't travel. I couldn't travel. She got denied three times to travel. Wow. I don't know what the government was thinking, but oh, um, criminal. So yeah, so we spend about probably about three or four months or five months a year together. She's got her own life. Um, I got a house in Perth, so everyone can everyone can go, go to school and become little Aussies instead of being jet brats in Jakarta and all the pollution and all that crap, you know. Yeah. Um, and uh, yeah, look, mate, I've been so fortunate. I mean, I just got to pinch myself sometimes. I mean, I'm always whinging. And remember, one mate of mine said, uh, "Hey, Martin, stop whinging, will you?" I says what? No one's listening, mate. Shut up. I was yeah. listening to you. From the outside, it looks like you got the blessed existence. Oh, all right, I'll shut up then. <laughs> it's a, it's a bloody, uh, it's almost like a human. I don't know. It's just like a human thing. We focus on the negatives quite a lot. Um, yeah. But yeah, back to the the early Indo days, man. Like, I mean, yeah, it must have been the wild west there. Like, in especially the the kind of late seventies, early eighties. Uh, I guess Sahara's at his peak and it just seems to be the most corrupt place on earth where, you know, it's a, a freaking just a tr- like a massive triangulation point for drug traffickers, for party boys, for pro surfers. I mean, pro surfers is a bit of a stretch. There probably wasn't. Oh, look, the great thing about Jakarta, we ended up barring Bali altogether, right? Because there was, you know, well, actually, I was in Bali and I was in a room with five blokes, and then about about two months later, they were all dead, every single one of them. Wow! So I decided that Bali was kind of dangerous. Um, so we ended up hanging in Jakarta, and the thing in Jakarta is there's 20 million people in Jakarta, and you can be lost in Jakarta and, and you can vanish, and no one cares what you're doing. You, you know, it's like there's no gossip, there's no small town stuff. So. I had a couple of buddies, and we were the only really some of the only young guy, young white guys in the whole city, and we just had a rampage of the time, and it was just private, and it was and you know we had a little surf break down the beach. We could go surfing on the weekends between diving jobs. There was nobody there, and that's what we discussed. That's kind of what got things going about looking for surf, was we were sort of 
we went to use a drive to this place that had a multi-story hotel. Guys in white suits at the door. It's Bitumen Road all the way there. And a, and a great little right-hander. There was nobody was surfing. Staying in a hotel. And then Kuta, there's, you know, there was 30, 40 guys out at Luluatu. They just started surfing in Bingen. That was gone. Changu was, was, had become somewhere where other people were surfing. We used to be able to surf it by ourselves back in the day. And just Bali was just going warm. And then Jakarta just took over. And um, then we decided, well, there's, if, there's, if there's no one surfing this joint and you can drive there on a, on a tar-sealed road and stay in a fucking hotel, there must be surf everywhere. And there was. Everywhere we turned, there was waves. And uh, just need the boat. Yeah. So, so yeah, from that point on, when you're in it's, Jakarta. It's just a good time and place to be born. Yeah. Mate, yeah. the timing. Yeah. But you also needed plenty of get up and go in those those years. You know, there wasn't surf camps and surf charters. You invented all that. So, um, you know, talk to us about that. those first forays. Like, I guess when you're in Jakarta, you got East Java, G-Land, West Java, you know, one palm and all that like which direction did you go first and uh what was it like traveling that coast well, the first, so so i had a land cruiser and an lfj 40 land cruiser and first of all i tried driving around that looking for surf but it's pretty hard you know rice paddies and and trying to get to the beach and and you know and there's not much surf really you can drive to with you know all the good all the good surf is remote headlands coral reefs and um so I just I remember we we well the story's you know old story, but we ended up meeting this guy Barnett, who owned the Indies Trader or the Raider, and we were all working with him, hanging out, we we're all divers and everything else. So I chartered the boat off him and said, Let's go look for surf. And he said, Okay, let's go, you know. And he told me, he said, I said, Dave, where have you seen really big waves? Right? And he said, oh, we did this salvage job out in a place called Engano, right? This is an island off the coast of Sumatra. And he goes, we were trying to get this big longliner off the reef. And the swell was massive. It didn't go down for like three months. It never stopped. I said, you know, that's where I reckon you should look for surf. So we went, actually, we actually went out there way back in the day. And on the way, we we found one palm and well, went well on the coast of Sumatra and surfed a whole bunch of the places with the surf camps and stuff now, probably for the first time. And we found one part. Wow. That was the first trip, 983. And a bunch of nefarious characters on board. And, you know, we all pass the hat around. Most of them are dead now. Um, and, uh, yeah. And uh, so that kind of proved the point that there is surf out there and no one's there. No one's even looked before. And we're going... What an opportunity. I'm talking about born in the right time in the right place. I mean, I kind of, it's still out there, but, but not as easy to get to. I mean, it was pretty easy, really, to get the boat and drive there, and there it is. Yeah. What about I remember the looking risks? at the starts of Penite. The risks, um, dodgy mates. <laughs> no <laughs> shortage the of them in those days in Indo. No. Everybody I knew was either a drug dealer or a drug smuggler or a scammer of some ilk, you know, because there's no pro surfing. There was no way to make an honest living. We were commercial divers and we were making really good coin. 
So we were about the only people that make an honest living because everyone else we knew was trying to figure out a way to exist and be an Indo and go surfing. So as you can imagine, there was a lot of a lot of uh, good ideas going around about how to make a quid. Yeah, wow. And not all of them were illegal. Yeah. Yeah. No, I don't have to look far in my uh, family and friendship group to um, know exactly the kinds of people you're talking about, Martin. But uh, well, the good thing is now is that, is that like smoking smoking weed is legal in most parts of the world. It's not a big deal. So people can actually, I reckon, all these all these old characters should come out of the woodwork and confess. It'd be hilarious. Hundred <laughs> percent. I just got my prescription the other day, but yeah, uh, yeah it, it's yeah, that's right, man. At the end of the day, you, you know, it's funny you say you know no one was making an honest living, and in the eyes of the law, yeah, like they weren't, but. In reality, you know, smuggling drugs is a largely victimless crime, as far as I can tell. I mean, fuck, you can't go to a pub in Australia uh, without being surrounded by a bunch of babbling cokeheads. Uh, there's pot fucking on every street corner. Yeah. Uh, you know, like in places like Portugal, the smart countries, they've they've legalized drugs of all kinds. That's, uh, I think it makes a lot of sense. If you want to be, if you want me a drug out, fuck with, go ahead. Just don't, just don't annoy, annoy me. And <laughs> yeah, leave well the family alone or whatever. Love that. Me, I'll second that. Me too. Yeah. Stay away from me. Um, yeah. So, in terms of like, did you run aground? What were the the, the gnarliest mishaps you had during these years? Well, they all, all up. I was thinking the other day. You know, we've got a really good safety record in this trader because you know I've seen a lot of bad things happen, and so it's bad shit happens. Shit happens, and I was just going through the list of all the things that has happened to us. Now I'm 66 now, so I've I've had I've lost two guys in a fire, two people in a fire that were, that were working with us. I've lost a captain that drowned and died just recently. I've had a guy attacked by a shark, had to deal with that. I've had another uh, customer die diving. I've had friends die. I've dragged mates out of the water unconscious and 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 brought them back again, and you know and. Broken backs, scalpings, uh, the injuries that you know, and we've got a very good safety record. But if you do something often enough, for long enough, it's going to happen to you. The statistical inevitability, and that's why I'm always, you know, the, the more experience you get, the more conservative you get because you realise that the odds are against you. And I reckon I'm going to get taken out just any minute. But I've survived so many close calls that statistically. I'm toast. Sooner or later, I'm just going to get a plane crash or get run over going down the street or something idiotic because I can't believe that I've survived this long and then how many of my friends are gone. I've got a list about this long of all my friends that work on the boat that I've known that don't, aren't with us anymore and uh, they should reflect. Yeah, man. Yeah, I, I heard, I'm sorry to hear about the, the passing of your, your mate, um, Jeff Chitty. I, uh, yeah, yeah, that was sad, mate. Like, when I first met Jeff, I mean, he's always a bit of a scoundrel. You know, when I first met him, he was breaking into houses, stealing stereos for a living. Um, he was a cat burglar. He wasn't, he wasn't, he, he wasn't, he wasn't into the the thieving so much as the adventure of it. You know, sneaking up, sneaking through people's bedrooms while they were asleep and nicking all their stuff and, you know, um, it was just, he was, he was just, a sort of an adrenaline junkie, Jeff, and um, and you know, 
he got out of jail um, and I, uh, I was hanging with him in Jakarta. I flew him up and we sat down and actually we were in Jakarta and I showed him the movie, The Sea of Darkness. He'd never seen it. And I, we had a one of those jumbo big bottles of uh, vodka, great mm. use vodka. They got duty free. And uh, I showed him the movie um, and uh, he goes, Oh, geez, my mum's going to give me a hard time about my language, eh? Right. That's too, of course. Like, of course. You know, he, in that film, he's amazing. Like, that, you know, that's how I know him is just through that film and, and, and how well he speaks and how honest he is. And he's just, I, I really admire characters like that. He's a very, very charismatic, mm. smart guy, Jeff. Yeah. And he, had, he really had his way around the language. I mean, when I was a young bloke, I was his wingman. I used to hate him because girls would just throw their panties at him. You know, they're like, it was, I just be just sitting there going, oh, come on, how about me? <laughs> and it, it was girls, girl, I was really attracted to girls coming and go, hey, how you going? And I go, oh, good. Can you introduce me to your mate? Classic. He used to shit me. Anyway, but he was like the guy that we always thought was going to be the guy that was going to succeed. He had the best, he was the best, he was, he was a good surfer, good looking bloke, really super fit, really good with his hands, could really fight. Um, you know, he was, he used, to, he used to punch outside his weight all the time, he's called Marley. And he just looked like the most likely guy to succeed. And in the end, like we came up to Jakarta and he watched the movie, so I'm getting off, off topic, but you know, he just fucked up everywhere he turned. Mm. Whereas my life has been the opposite. It's like we're like Cain and Abel, me and Jeff. Mm. Um, and he came to Jakarta. He watched the movie. I went to bed, woke up, and the bottle was empty. Wow. And he'd watched it about five times in a row. And he's going, oh, Jesus. Oh, I know. I don't know about that. Oh, Christ. Well, Peter McCabe's going to kill me. Mm. <laughs> I was always more concerned about what the effect he was having on other people. And um, I don't know. And then I took him to the Marshall Islands on the boat, on the Trader One. You know, in the movie, he goes, uh, all over, we jumped over 64 on the water. Well, I put him on the boat. We took him to the Marshall Islands. He drove all the way up there. It was like a two-week trip, three-week trip. And he worked for us for a while, little while. And I was sort of trying to put my arms around and give him a hand. Mm. He got an eye infection. He's a really bad eye infection. And I had to get him. I had to get him back to a uh, proper hospital. Mm. That was the last time I saw him was at the airport, Marjoro. And um, he actually managed to get through a visa to go to America and walk through the airport. How he managed to do that, I'll never know. Hey. I mean, his record was, he had a bit of a record. Yeah. And um, <laughs> I mean, there's stories about Jeff can keep you going forever, but he um, went back and then everyone was really, his family was really mean to him. And he ended up dying by himself, kind of drunk himself to death. Um, not I think it was at Bethel's Beach or one of the West Coast beaches in um, in uh, New Auckland, in a sort of a surf shack thing. And he had a, had a, a hemorrhage in his stomach and um, killed him. Dead. Mm, oh, sorry to hear that, man. So ultimately, yeah. um, he struggled with, with alcohol addiction, I guess. Um, like you, like you know, when I 
when I was with him, like after we flew up from after getting out of jail, he flew up to Jakarta, and when I was on the boat, he wasn't a pisshead at all. Hmm. We had some fun, had a few had a few good nights, but but I think he was just destroyed. You know, like with so much potential, his life looked. You know, look at Jeff when he was thirty; his life looked like it was going to be an absolute uh, the best life ever, and it just kept on making mistakes and you know. That's a sad story. Yeah. And um, so, yeah, what what did he end up locked up for in the end? It was some sm- smuggling of some kind. Um, why did he go to jail? Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, smuggling. Yeah. He was, he got, he got, he got, he got in bed with this guy called Mike Boyum. And, um, you know, that's, just, that's, you know, and, uh, he kind of subverted Jeff to, um, um, and Jeff was, you know, he was already a bit, a bit of a bad boy. He kind of didn't really want to, I don't know. He was conducive to criminal activity. He just liked getting away with stuff, you know. I mean, he was kind of like, like one of those guys. Your, your mate likes to be shocking, you know. Always tries to tries to funny, but he always does shocking stuff to make everyone uncomfortable around him. I remember walking down the street in Jakarta with him. And uh, he's shuffling along. Why is he shuffling? He's got his boardies down around his ankles and his dick hanging out, right? <laughs> he says, well, they're staring at me. I give him something to stare at. <laughs> yeah, it's true. They're always looking at you, especially in those <laughs> days. Uh, oh, that's fucking wild. Yeah. Um, yeah, man. Well, so how does that relationship unfold? You mentioned the film Sea of Darkness, um, you know, G-Land. Like, you know, when – when do you first venture there and, um, you know, talk to us about, yeah, the early days at G-Land? Well, I wasn't, I wasn't, a, I wasn't a G-Land guy, you know, I just had to, had a lot to do with Boyum and I went to G-Land, you know, five or six times in my life. Um, drove the boat there when it was closed down and stayed there for a while with my mates and had a good go at it. And I went there for the Quicksilver contests. Hey, hi, sweetie. I'm on the. Um, I can't talk to you right now. Can you call you back in twenty minutes? Okay, there. Right, that's Mrs. No worries. Um. Yeah. We'll um. Just, what's I talking? Just uh, Gland. Just uh. I oh, Gland. So Chitty and yeah, Boyam so, and and those early. I got, I kind of got roped into that thing, and I. You know, I'm not a G-Land surf hero by any means. I was around in the early days when the boys were going there. I They tried because we were divers they, and we had some money. They always trying to try and talk us into going there and paying to go there because there weren't too many guys around that could afford it. I was 100 bucks a day or something in the early 80s. And uh, I didn't go over to the camp that Boyum had. I knew all about it and everything else. And I went back when it, was, when it burnt down. Um and I've been there for the so I went there a couple of times when it was closed and it was off limits. And I went there for the Quicksilver contests as a you know helping out. So that's my experience with the place. Right. But, uh, and and yeah. those, what, so, what was your experience with uh with Boyum? Like what kind of a bloke was he? Bit of a touchy one, eh? I'm in Hawaii at the moment. Oh. And uh, looking around me, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, he was a narcissist sociopath, mm. a bit like Donald Trump. 
mm. right? He was a, quite a quite a engaging, a charismatic guy, but you know, I I didn't like him. Uh, Jeff thought he was awesome. Anyway, it was fun to be around, you know, like those sort of people are. Um, but I kind of figured he was dodgy, and uh, nothing good was going to happen. So I actually, they were living in my house, and they moved into my house. Um, William did, and brought all the crap from Zealand, all the mattresses and all the stuff from when he got kicked out of there. And um, we were camping in this house in Jakarta, and he was staying there. And yeah, you know, we were all pretty young, having a good time. And he he was very good friends with a guy called Dave Wiley, who's since passed away as well. And I don't know, they just, we thought we were, Jeff and I, we weren't like cool surfer guys. We were just like kooks, you know. And all of a sudden we're hanging out with these really cool dudes that know every, all the surf stars of the time. And so, you know, it was a bit impressive, you know, you know hey, I'm just, we're just idiots. And we're hanging out with these, you know. And then Jeff got really enamored with the old idea. And I just went, nah, these guys are fuckwits, to be honest. Um, and I was more interested in hanging out with Barnett and going diving and, and exploring and making a living and having a future instead of, you know, Jesus. I'll turn the phone off, mate. Sorry. Yeah. Right. Hello. Hey, Jody, it's Martin here. I'm on, on, on a Zoom call. Um, the, the Kurt's looking, Kurt's going to look for you at the gate here if you're here. All right. Yeah. Um, yeah. So Michael, Michael Boyum. You know, anyway, it's a long story, but he uh, he was he was they used to sit around him and Jeff used to sit around at the house talking about crime, about how to rob the money changer, how to blackmail this person. They they gone past just smuggling a bit of weed or whatever. They decided they want to be absolute criminals, and I just bailed. I just went somewhere else because I decided really clearly I was nothing nothing I wanted to have anything to do with. And the rest is history. Man, it is. And, you know, it's interesting the way that the your paths diverged and the way your lives panned out. You know, both those guys died far beyond their years, you know, prematurely dead. Um, yourself, yeah. you know, you've got a family, you've got a legitimate business. Uh, you know, your kid is sending you photos, getting barreled. Like, it's a great lesson yeah. in that. In choosing the honest path versus choosing the the, the quick and easy money, it almost long, always the long game here. versus the short game. Yeah, while Martin takes care of a bit of business and pick it up back during his time with Quicksilver. One thing I was interested to to chat with you about, just your time with Quicksilver, like uh, your shared space, like close quarters with some of the greatest surfers of all time um the greatest surfer of all time in fact kelly slater i understand you you kind of watched him grow up in a lot of ways i believe he was just a grommet when you guys um you know first met uh, what was that like man what I kind of it uh, yeah sorry um kelly's a um amazing human um i first met him he was pretty young um, i was about 36 and he was about 22 maybe and he wasn't, he was a prodigy, but he wasn't the guy. It was still Tom Curran. And, um, even at, you know, he's a big deal for sure, but he hadn't won a world title, I don't think. And um, so he came out to the boat and he was pretty shy and, and um, 
just you know, just a young. I remember uh, um, he called my wife "ma'am," I think, and she was didn't know what to do. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, he, yeah, he, and you know, I spent a lot of time with Kelly over the years, maybe over a year in his company. Um, and uh, yeah, I'm sort of feel um, privileged to have known to know him. Um, and he's such a such an incredibly impressive human um, in many ways. And uh, yeah, um, he's been always very gracious towards me. We're not great friends. Um, I'm more of the grumpy captain that's been getting, kicking his butt to get him in the water and get to get his photograph taken. Um, I used to be always so scared of him, so I had to. I was always elected to be the one that go and bang on his door and get him get him out there. Um, and we've we've had some good times together and some many really strange places and I've taken him diving and and stuff the first time and I got to tell you about this dive we did. Kelly and I went to a place in the Louisiana Archipelago and um, on the very beginning of the crossing, the very first trip in 1999, and um, we pulled up at this place and it was like out of a an old movie there was actually sharks fighting each other on the reef like something out of the 40s or something and we stopped and there was this cyclone of sharks under the boat this big rotating school of sharks and we anchored it was just inside this pass and they died down and i said kelly you want to go for a dive they hadn't done much diving before maybe i kind of jumped a few lessons or whatever, but he's a waterman for Kelly, you know, so we jumped in and it was the best dive I've ever done. We got to the bottom and the sharks were sort of had had quietened down a bit. And then there was just every sort of fish you've ever seen at this place. There was like every kind of coral trout. There was every kind of trevally. There were schools of there were schools of uh massive barracuda surfing over the head. There was Queensland gropers. There was all sorts of different kinds of sharks. And Kelly had a spear gun. And he was pointing the spear gun at big coral trout. I'm going, no, don't shoot anything. It's just erupted into a massive, you know, like a feeding frenzy. And, you know, and I've never, it was like diving in the aquarium somewhere. It was mad. And I finished the dive, got back on the boat and said to Kelly, well, I'm sorry, mate. I think I've ruined diving for you for the rest of your life. I said, why? Because that was probably the best dive I've ever done for marine life. And it's just going to go downhill from here, mate. Wow. And I think if you asked him about it, he would say that was pretty true. Oh, man. If only I could... Yeah. If only I could see what you guys saw. That's remarkable. And... You know, talking about uh, your dealings with Quicksilver, like, so you basically, you know, chauffeur him to the Mints in a sense, take Tommy Carroll and uh, and Ross Clark Jones up there in the, the early 90s. Um, you know, talk to us about pots. pots. Can't forget Pots. Yeah. Uh, 89 yeah. world yeah. champ. Can't forget him. Um, yeah, I yeah. mean, talk to us about just the craziest shit that you were seeing up there as a surfer, your eyes must have been just popping out of your skull. 
Okay, I can re- I can remember the very first trip we did, which we called the trip, right? And it was the the, the trip of all time in the Midwest. Still hasn't been beaten. And um, I uh, didn't know these guys. I didn't read surfing magazines. I didn't really have anything to do with the surf industry. I had no idea. I'd heard of Tom Carroll, but I never heard of Rossback Jones or Martin Potter. Um, no idea. And um, you know, I knew that I knew that I didn't want, I didn't really want to take him because I was worried about exposure, and we knew that nothing good could happen out of taking professional surfers out there. But I got conned into it, and you know, in the end of the day, it was a pretty good time. And you know, we 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 um, you know, I got to be very careful not to talk out of school. Um, I think the most amazing thing was we were we were at uh, tonight, and it was quite small. And we drove out. We drove out overnight, and the swell picked up while we were driving. And I didn't really know much about how good these surfers were. We were just kooks. We used to surf on the coast of Java, and and yeah, we could surf, but we weren't. You know, we had no outside influences. We surfed by ourselves, kind of hillbillies. And um, we pulled up at this place that was that they said it was eighteen feet. That was what Tom said, mm. and Ross, and and. They said that was, you know, that's remarkable when you think about how big that is. This photo, there's actually a couple of photographs of this session banging around. And we pulled up and it looked perfect. It looked like it was about six foot. And then they paddled out there. Everyone in the boat jumped out. I didn't anchor because there was too much swell. And everyone paddled out. And all of a sudden, the set came through and everyone paddled in except for the uh, pots, Ross and Tom. And uh, it was then that I realized the difference between but mere mortals and the gods of surfing because I watched the show that they put on um, and I was just stunned how much better they surf and how I was just like, get, get over yourself. I can't surf, period. And these guys were so much better than anything I've ever seen. The surf was gigantic. They were playing. They were doing crossovers, on it, dropping into each other. The surf that would terrify most people. And uh, I just saw we had two weeks on that trip and with those guys and wow, I saw the best the best surfing I've ever seen. And everywhere we went was as good as you ever see it. It was just one of those trips and, and you know, it was the right time of year and there was no wind and like talking about my son at telescopes to the, uh, yesterday. We we had it on that trip the first time I'd ever really seen telescopes good. And I remember we pulled up at dawn. And nobody knew anything. They knew nothing about me. They knew nothing about the surf and the, and the mints. They just come on this random trip. And we pulled up a telescope and, and it was kind of misty in the morning. It was just daylight. We pulled up the first light just at the end of the break. And this kind of 18-wave set came through. Um, someone was videoing it. I think they counted it. And everyone just went, no, I didn't even know what good surf was. The, the, you know, all I knew was a surf that we had was pretty good. But I thought about Hawaii and all the stuff that they have there. And it had to be much, much better than anything that, I, that we had over here in Indonesia. You know, I, I thought that, you know, I didn't know shit, really. And I can see the look at these guys' faces. They're just going, what the hell is this? And I go, well, it's, it's telescopes. And they go... What? You should ask. You should, you should interview them about it. Yeah. And um, they went out there and they surfed 
you know, it's as good as it gets. And it was one of the finest displays of tube riding by Tom and Stuart Cadden mm. that I've ever seen because they were the natural foot, the bat, the goofy footers. And then uh, Potts, I think, did 18 snaps on one wave. Wow. Um, it was like ludicrous. And uh, yeah. Oh, man. So Same. that was, you know. Uh, so I was kind of like got to know these guys slowly, became mates with a few of them. Um, and in the end, it, uh, just about every pro surfer for that jet for, for the 90s and the early 2000s, Guyans to Bruce Irons to Tom Curran, you know, spent a lot of time with Tom. And um, I think every world champion except two, I think, at one stage there have been through the, been on the boat. And yeah, Midget Farrelly was one, and uh, can't remember the other one, but anyway. <laughs> Wow, man. Wow. Yeah. And, and give us some insights into the Irons brothers. Uh, I mean, obviously yeah, they had some, some wild times at sea in Indo on those boat trips. I don't know if you were the captain when AI uh, essentially died of a, some kind of uh drinking too much piss or something, but uh, yeah. Those... The Boogie Man Hotel, yeah. I wasn't there, but I know what about. Yeah. yeah. Um, now, look, the, the, both of those guys, the Irons brothers, they're, they're, they're good humans. Um, Andy, you know, they had their demons, of course, and you know they're pretty, pretty. Uh, they like to party, but as 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 generally as humans, just really nice people to be around. Really considerate. Um, yeah, good guys. Yeah, classic. I mean, that seems to and be. Can surf, what I say. What's and, and can surf. <laughs> Bruce, I mean. <laughs> We had this thing called the OP Boat Challenge um, years and years ago. And I, I some of the finest surfing I've, I've ever seen was on that trip with this book by Bruce. And Macaroni's just no handers, just, just playing with it, really deep, really hollow, doing amazing, amazing things with that wave. That was an amazing event, and it's forgotten. And I, I almost feel like that's where the the WSL should be looking is is at running events like that. Uh, can you talk to us about that event? Uh, your memory of it? Well, I didn't really want to do it. Um, I did the first one. I kind of got bludgeoned into it as either, as either you do it or we'll get some other guy to do it that'll make that'll that'll really damage the area. I tried. We tried very much to be as cool as possible, um, like you know, bringing a whole, bringing it. Like everyone's got, the, everyone has the rights to waves. There's no, no one's more special. No one, you know, has special rights in my opinion. And so we, we had to go around and, and try and empty lineups to to do a competition, which is not cool, right? But I remember we went to went to Lance's rights. We pulled up Cartier there in the keyhole, and. We went there was, a, there was a I think it was a boat or two there I forget right, and uh, I just went around and said look, cases of beer, watch the show boys, come on if you don't mind can you let these guys have a crack at it, right? So we just handed out VB. Unbelievable. And um, everyone sat there on the piss, and there was a vibe. The vibes were awesome. Like well, he made a really good time, you know, and uh, and but. I'm, I'm not a big, you know, as I say, the middle wise is very personal for me. I mean, I've been up there, but watched, I've watched every single person arrive. And it's still magic. But it's not as magic as it was. And, but, you know, 
that's the good thing about the, the boat trips is that when there's no one there, it's still the same as it ever was. Mm. And we still you know, get it by ourselves, not places like you know, the really name breaks, but we still get lots of uncrowded waves and it's still probably the most, I don't know, the Disneyland of, of surf. I mean, there's kind of, I've been, I'm really well-traveled. I've been a lot of places. It's pretty hard to beat the men's. Mm, mm. And, uh, you know, what was it like for you watching it go the way it did? I mean, you would have seen it come in stages and waves, but, yeah, talk us through watching this place that you discovered in, in a lot of ways or a lot of waves there you discovered at least. And, uh, I mean, and then watching, you know, the the kind of uh, ca- cannibalistic appetite of the surf industry towards it. It was like watching a watching a chips, you know. Um, just that everybody that came there stayed there. No one ever left. There's boats and camps, and everybody wanted to set something up. And it seemed like there was. A, and the weird thing was, is I think that everybody thought that I was making a killing out of it, and and that they would do the same thing, and. I had a, made a commercial diving business in J- Jakarta that we that I wound up in 2000, but we've been there out in the men's for 10 years at that time. Um, and when I arrived with when I arrived out there the first time, um, I owned the boat. I had a house that I owned outright, and I had half a brick in the bank from my diving business. And everybody thinks that the whole thing was that I made all that I made fantastic amount of money out of surf charters. It's a passion, mate. It's really hard to make money out of running running a surf charter. Um, you can pay the bills and you have a really good time at it, and you know, but a few compromises are made. And I think all of us that make a living out of the surfing industry make compromises. You know, we're not the purists that we, you know, like in your situation, you're a commentator on surfing and like to think you're a purist, but you're making a living out of it still. Oh, mate, right? it's, it's, so, a, it's a muddy, murky yeah. world. It is a bit, yeah, and. Uh, so yeah, so don't know what I'm rabbiting on about, but um, I just tried to tried to be positive and watch the show and and run away to my various places where I could hide. Um, you know, I mean, we used to live, we used to we used to do Lance's rights and Lance's lefts and the macaronis and 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 telescopes. That was and uh, that was it. That was our that was a, the milk run, and we used to do by ourselves for years. And then other boats turned up and we kind of figured out how to share it with them. And then I used to run away to the Kandui area to get away from everybody. Now it's the opposite. You can't go there. There's thousands of people up there. So we sort of, <laughs> you know, um, you know, sometimes I sort of, I'm lucky that I left the mints and looked elsewhere with, you know, the Quicksilver and the crossing and the thing we're doing in the Pacific. Because if I was just in the Menowise, it'd be kind of, I'd be a really bitter and twisted old fuck, because um, you know, going. I went to I went to Cardi at Lance's rights the other day, and there was no boats there. It was just us. There was forty seven people in the water from the beach, and they were yelling at each other. They were back paddling inside each other. There was local kids screaming at people to go in. It was like I was just. It was, it was like it was like watching your wife get gang raped. It was horrible. You know, and I just went, 
I haven't paddled out for, for a couple of years now. I wouldn't even think about it. Um, but you can say, well, that's, that's the reality of the situation. It's like I'm sure the guys have first surfed Akira and first surfed at, at all these breaks that had the same experience. You know, I said, well, I'm no longer going to be able to get away there anymore because I'm not good enough and I don't want it, you know. And, uh, yeah, it's, it's it has been tough, but I still love it out there. I mean, it's still, for me, it's really like home, you know. I mean, let's say it's been been 30 years now that I've been going there every single season, six months a year. Yeah, so. And and you've retained your, your, your Indonesian crew members, I understand. Oh. I love that, Martin. Can you give us a, a bit of an insight into the, these guys who you've uh, had on your, working your boats for for decades now? Um, all my crew, you know, they essentially it's a, a lifetime gig. You know, they get on there, they get looked after, and they get become part of the family, and um, they really are precious to me. Um, and you know, I've I've got two in retirement right now that I'm paying, um, maybe three now. That start that are in their sixties and they start off with our kids. I mean, they they they've been on the boat since nineteen eighty. Wow! I inherited them from Barnett. I bought the boat in eighty six. So, yeah, um, yeah, it's interesting. So yeah, they've been they've really been they've really been the specials. Jesus, hang on. Um, yeah, so. It's been, um, they've been, they've, you know, it's been the secret of our success is, is the, as our Indonesian people. They, they work hard, they're loyal, they do their very, very best. You know, I mean, I'm a real believer in them. Yeah. Oh, that's classic, man. And yeah, just to connect with a culture like that, so different from ours. Sorry. You, got a, you, you okay? Everything good? Yeah, I'm all good. Right, yeah, I'll call you back. All right. Okay. Yeah. All right, bye. That's 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 uh, the marshals calling. <laughs> True. <laughs> yeah, the bastards are out there parked next to a next to a beautiful pass with a surf, and they just caught like two days ago the biggest yellowfin I think we've ever landed. Anyway, no way. And they're getting paid for it. Remarkable. <laughs> oh, don't rub it in, Martin. Wow, amazing <laughs> man. Um, yeah. Yeah, and no, the when cro- the been a secret to everything, they're fantastic. Yeah, yeah, that's magic, man. And yeah, just to, to have that connection with a, with a culture so different to ours, um, you know, just wild. But yet you're all out there at sea making it work, and um, you know, I, I imagine you've gotten to know their families, everything about them over the years. Oh yeah, I mean, it's 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 yeah, you know, they've had their they've had their emergencies and. The big thing is that they know see, they haven't got the doll. They haven't got social security. They've got no medical. They've got nothing. So if you look after them and become their social security and they know that if something happens to their family or their wife or their kids or their house burns down or you, you'll catch them, they never leave. So it's really hard to find that. Mm. And I've always been there for my guy. Mm. You know, like for instance, for instance, one of the guys was was picking up a generator out of the hold, and the cable broke, and he fell into the hold and broke his back. Right, and uh, he ended up he ended up 
he ended up in a Gulf Stream flying back from the Marshalls to 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 Singapore, and then to Jakarta, going in going in for surgery. Uh, I think the bill was three. Bill was two ninety thousand US dollars. What? Um, right. And now he's back at work. Is a and they looked after his family and they paid all the bills. They flew his wife into the hospital and yeah, you know, I, I had to pay. I had to pay about uh, twenty five thousand or thirty thousand AUD in excess and stuff for it, but um, at least I was insured and uh, we had a happy outcome, you know. And that sort of stuff is, is for them is sort of legendary. Nothing that never happens in those, you know. Never. Where they get treated that. Yeah, it's like okay, inshallah, what will be will be. Yeah, mate, you're in the hospital. See you later. So yeah. He's um guy guys guys called Uchok. Yeah, Uchok. And, uh, yeah. Fucking yeah, go Uchok. Love that, man. Oh, that's classy. That's exactly yeah. what I'm talking about. Yeah, that that that's rare, man. And and it's a beautiful thing that you you're both able to to benefit from that relationship in such a authentic and profound way. Yeah, I mean, you know, twenty thousand dollars for us is a lot of money. Mm. But for them, it's an impossible amount of money. Mm. You know, and uh, so that, that's the secret. But it's 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 for the Indonesians to know you got their back, mm. and they've got yours. Mm. Time, particularly when they break but it. I remember, <laughs> I remember the Turks and Caicos that had a had a fight with a guy at the dock, and uh, I came back to the boat. You know, a t shirt was torn, a bit of blood, bit of bit, bit of um, claret here and there. You know, and. All the boys went to the galley and grabbed knives and they went to the guy's boat. They had him surrounded, right? I said, it's okay, guys. It's okay. It's okay. <laughs> That's all right. We're, no problem. No yeah. Problem. See, in Australia, we just punch each other in the head. It's fine. It happens after six beers, like most, most weekends. Yeah. No one has to die yeah, here. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Mate. Uh. What about um you know did you have you ever had any experience with pirates or um yeah kind of other nefarious actors uh, on the on the seas trying to get the better of you? Well, I had a really good run for I had a really really good run for decades and decades, and you know I told you that story about uh, the cyclone. Yeah. In the market, right? So I get back in in the town. I get everything sorted out. And I thought I'm going to head out and look for surf, right? But nothing better to do. So I head around. I head around the the coast of. I'm going to. I'm going to circumnavigate the island of Guadalcanal for for, for fun. I don't reckon anyone's ever done it looking for surf, so I'm going to have a crack at it. And I go down the. I go down the. I guess it's the uh, east coast, and um, the west coast, right? Uh, the crack captain, um, and. And I want to go around the bottom of the island. This is, and I found I found some waves, uh, nothing spectacular, but there was definitely surf. And I pulled into this bay called Wanderer Bay. Um, you know, it's pretty innocuous English name and everything else. And pulled up, and I, I couldn't go around the corner because the southeast were blowing. And I wanted to wait to the next day and do it in daylight. So I threw the anchor out. I saw a guy in a canoe. I said, hey mate, how are you going? Um, is it okay if I anchor here? Yeah, yeah, my family. This is our, this is our place. You're okay? And I'm like, okay, fine, no worries. 
And so I got the tin boat and went surfing, looking for the, up the coast. Or, uh, I saw some surf and some setups potentially. And um, I get this uh, call from the boat. Boss, 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 come back to the boat. Problem, big problem. I go, what's up? I can hear yelling and screaming in the background on the VHF radio on the boat. I go burning back and I punch it back to the boat. And I get to the boat and there's four of these little local fiberglass boats around the stern of the Indies Trader 3. And um, I don't think much of it. I just come down. I come along towards the back of the, the duckboard at the back, you know. Um, what's up, fellas? What's going on, you know? Thinking that like anywhere else we go to, people are pretty friendly and there's something we need to, you know, they usually try to rouse us for something. They want some money or they want us to give them some something or they want to sell us something or they just want to say hello, you know. And I get to the back of the boat and I see one of my guys has got a big cut in his forehead. There's blood, there's cloud coming out everywhere. And I see my skipper's the same. He's been hit um, by a pipe apparently. And there's always noise and these guys and they're all trying to get on the boat and there's and shit's, shit's trumps. I go close to the boat. I get too close. And I see an older guy that looks like a normal older guy. And I say, what's going on there, mate? You know, they can speak English. I go, what have we done? He says, oh, you've got COVID. Oh, you bring COVID to our place. And la, la, la. I said, no, no. Hey, if you don't want us here, we'll go. We'll move on. It's all right. You know, no, 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 no. You're a bad guy. You're bad people. You come, you bring COVID. I go, Sure, whatever, mate. I'm going to Chris, you know, I'm looking at Chris and he's this is my Indonesian skipper. And he's a tough dude, you know, and he's he's you can see him, he's kind of rattled. And they're defending the back of the boat. They didn't get they had to fight them off. They didn't get into the accommodation, but they stripped the back deck, took everything off the back deck, all our ropes, radios, handhelds, my best going out, fucking thongs. Um uh, my, it, all sorts of good, all, all sorts of stuff, right? Fishing rods. They tried to take the big gold rod, gold reel rod, and the boys fought them over it and kept it. Wow! It was like gnarly. And so one of these guys just jumps on the into the tin boat because I went too close. And next thing you know, he's wrestling with me, trying to say, "I take your boat. I take it to the beach. We go talk on the land and, the, and my village." I'm going, "No, I'm not going. Any village this is my boat. Let it go." Yeah, you know. And we're Two of us are wrestling the wheel and throttle. And I'm saying to Chris, so this is the distraction now. They're all attacking me. So they managed to get the anchor up on the boat and get the engines fired up. And I'm wrestling with this dude. He's about the same size as me. He's a pretty solid boy. And he's just got these crazy eyes and these red teeth, all the beetle nut they're in, you know, really dark skin, right? And he's on, they're on something. They're on, on some sort of jungle juice, whether it be alcohol or I don't know what it is. But every now and then I get some clarity. I say, what are you doing? You're going to get in a lot of trouble for doing this. Come on, let's just, think, let's just talk it through. We'll go. Come on. Anyway, get a long story short. We wrestled over the boat. He wanted to steal the tin boat off me. He ended up spinning the prop by putting it in gear and, and we were fighting over the, the, the throttle and, you know, had hold of the wheel. And... Long story short, another guy managed to get to the boat. He hit me over the back of the head with a paddle and knocked me down. Wow. And then the two of them started pummeling me with their fists. But to be honest, they weren't really they weren't really that strong or they weren't really convicted about hurting me. They 
We're just going through the motions. And I managed to get one guy jumped off with my fuel tank and everything else swam to another boat. And the big guy that, that attacked me the first time, I managed to get my shoulder under him and get him off the boat, push him in the water. Wow. And and the fucker managed to grab the keys to the ignition to the motor on the way out. No. <laughs> like he was weird. Whatever the drug was, they had moments of real sh- sharpness and clarity. They weren't real sloppy, you know. Anyway, so the boat came to a big, big loop and there's these four boats. They're all yelling at each other and they had taken away our shit and Chris came around with the boat and threw me a line and then we just punched it with the big boat out as far away as we get and then made a nine degree uh, out to sea and just kind of go, what was that about? And wow. I went back in the hospital, saw the Australian embassy, I actually spoke to the Prime Minister of the Marshall, of the, of the Solomon Islands about it, and nothing happened. They didn't go down there and bang heads. And apparently, these guys were the last vestiges of the of the um, Bougainville Revolutionary Army, and everyone's scared of them. I went to the, I went to the wrong place. Wow, that's crazy, yeah. man. Yeah, because they have heaps of instability in the Solomons. They had a coup there not that long ago, I feel like. Um, and it's, so it's not well, this yeah, friendly they place. They burnt down Chinatown since last time I was there. Yeah. Pretty good place. I mean, it's a pretty sick place. I mean, it's a beautiful place. And it's some really, really nice people there too. But it's really, some places are awesome. Some places are not so awesome. You need to have local knowledge to know where you're going and they're very, I don't know, easily excited. Mm. But I had some amazing experiences there as well. Wow, so, man. You know. That's a wild story. And it is kind of the stuff you, you picture happening in your line of work occasionally where you, you come across little vestiges of, yeah, some fucking revolutionary army or, okay. uh, you know, you, you hear yeah. about this stuff happening in the world. Well, that's what I said to you before. If you do something often enough, it's going to happen to you eventually, or or, <laughs> and so I've been really lucky. I I I had one experience in the South China Sea back in the eighties that wasn't that, that didn't eventuate to anything, but that was the only time that we've ever been attacked, mm. or I've ever been attacked. Which is crazy, considering you know the Quicksilver crossing from memory. A lot of that was happening around Central America, wasn't it? We went everywhere, right? yeah, and we went to Solomon's. We went to, um, you know, Papua New Guinea, and we went to all these places. Um, uh, yeah, well, just lucky. Or we're unlucky, I think, better way, better to say that this situation was Solomon's. Pandemic was tough, man. Mm. I mean, I had my boat burnt down. I got attacked with a cyclone. We lost it. I lost my shirt financially. I didn't see my family for two and a half years. Um, I'm glad it's over, eh? Fuck, that is a rough run. That's crazy. And, man, what, what do people not understand? And I had maybe the best time I've ever had. The best, <laughs> the biggest adventure of my life. <laughs> wow. That's, yeah, I can't yeah. imagine, man. Yeah, being stateless and uh, not seeing your family and uh, then getting attacked by pirates. Fucking hell. Uh, losing a boat in a fire. It's a lot, man. Um, And, uh, yeah, I was going to ask you, like, you know what? My captain, my captain drowned. Your captain drowned. Yeah, he was diving out of the back. Either the guy, the captain, and the Indian trader. Uh, he was he couldn't go back to home to Chuk, where he lived with his wife and kid, 
and he was stuck in Marjoro and he was really uh, depressed, just living in the, he was just in the wheelhouse of the boat on the internet all day, didn't do any work. I was still paying him, of course. Couldn't go home. And he went for a dive off the back of the boat in 160 feet of water and had a heart attack or a stroke and popped up dead next to the boat. Wow. That's crazy. Fuck, it was a tough time, man. That was rough on, yeah, I can't imagine that isolation on a boat. Mm. And everyone else is complaining they've got to stay home and watch TV. Yeah. <laughs> it's stuck at sea on his own. Man. Yeah. I was, I was just, I, I, you know, I honestly, I think it was, I think the fact that I had no reason to be in a hurry and I had nowhere to go and I had time to, ta- to really take time and really look at, wait for swell sit at a place for a week and check it out, meet the local people. And, and then, you know, it was, we managed to find a lot of good surf. Mm. And what about, uh, you know, in your time in Indo and elsewhere, were you dealing with, uh, you know, many earthquakes, tsunamis, that kind of stuff? Were you around for, for when all that was, was at its worst? Which, which one? <laughs> yeah, exactly. There's been dead set a thousand. Yeah. Um, and, uh, yeah, well, um, uh, we've been lucky. We've been at sea. Um, the big one, Arche, um, didn't really affect Padang. Um, the big earthquake they had in Padang was gnarly. I drove into town that morning. We came in from the Mendoi at, at, at daylight and there was no lights in Padang, not a light anywhere, a few car lights. Um, and I drove into town at dawn, um, and there was just devastated my house was okay in padang my next door neighbor the whole family was crushed under their house all died no one i mean it's kind of like a forgotten incident but i don't know how many people were killed in padang in that big earthquake but i probably tens of thousands yeah i mean there was a there was a car i drove past a car that had a a big marble round marble like rock on top of it with everybody dead inside it. Oh, that was on the way. Wow. Yeah, that's that's so gnarly. I know the quake you're talking about, I think it was like an eight point nine. It's massive. Um and Did- I think I talked to uh Matt Cruden about that. He was in Penang when it went off and you know the guys just in a pair of thongs just hurtling car bonnet after car bonnet with live electrical wires hissing around the joint. And I think that's another reality of being an operator in Indonesia uh, that a lot of people don't understand. Yeah. I mean, Phuket. Yeah, he did. He has told me that story. That's that's a most random story ever. How is it? I spilled coffee everywhere. I saw that. <laughs> That's okay. It's all over my nice carpet. Classic. Anyway. Yeah, he has told me that drinking. story. And, and like, he's got to be the, the most unlucky man alive. Uh, or, yeah, the, the most unlucky man who's still alive, um, given how many he's been in proximity for. That, that, that fucking Phuket or Patong Beach, whatever it was, story, uh, 
in Thailand where the, the villagers just come screaming through the restaurant he's in and his wife's heavily pregnant. They've got a one-year-old and they just have to take off running, uh, looking for some stairs to get up while the water rips through the joint. It's, it's just yeah. madness. Yeah. How close did you come uh, in terms of, um, yeah, I mean, I guess that Penang story is very close. And, I, you know, there was also, uh, I remember – there was a boat there at Macaroni's, a couple of boats that got run into each other, moored too close together. One exploded. Um, I think everyone survived, but the Macaroni's land camp got wiped. I can't remember what quake or tsunami that was. There's been so many, but I mean, in terms of the, the aftermath of these quakes and the relief effort, it's often the charter operators uh, like yourself that have to step in and, and fill that void um, in Indonesia. Obviously, emergency services are not what they are here. You, you just mentioned the word macaroni, and I just saw red. <laughs> yeah, just it was just all a beep <laughs> after that. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Well, well, you know, we, I mean, it's it's one of those things where at one stage there, everyone was saying, well, "What are you guys doing for the local communities? You're taking money, you're making money out of surf while they you sit and drink champagne and they and they starve to death. How can you do that?" What's your contribution? And there was a lot of big guilt trip that was laid on for a while. You know, it was surf aid and noise stuff. There was articles saying that, you know, surfing industry should cough up and they should sponsor this and sponsor that. And, and um, you know, but in the background, we've done a lot to help the people out there. And and when I, what I do is I say, you know, they put their hand out for money. They go, look, I'm not going to give you any money just because you're here. But if you're in trouble, give us a call. We'll help you out genuinely in trouble and when they've been genuinely in trouble we certainly have done a lot raised millions of dollars to help out and delivered all the aid and all that sort of stuff mm. so yeah i'm pretty proud of the out of boys usually the aussies actually they get stuck in um whenever there's a problem it's usually the usually team team oz gets in there and gets as a, a crack at it mm. yeah i don't want to get too uh patriotic about it but at the same time, it is nice knowing there is so many Australian um, charter boat captains and operators in the region because that is in our cultural DNA to, to down tools and help people out and each other when um, you know shit's hitting the fan. And we just saw that with uh, there was I think four Aussies lost at sea up around the Hanakos, and uh, again it was all the charter operators who filled the void left by the Indo Emergency Services. They pulled the pin on the search almost immediately because it was too rough um, from what I understand. And it was left to the the captains in the area to, to, to search the area and eventually find those missing people, uh, except for the very sadly. Well, the how, about, how about the guy that was, how about, how about the guy that was the South African guy that was in the water for 38 hours or something and Doris picked up. That's a great yeah. story. A co-op, everybody downing tools and having a crack and, and, and really working on it. And uh, yeah. It is rad, man. And man, finally, like, yeah, tell us what your, your current plans and projects are. Um, I understand, you know, you guys are, you got your, your finger in a few pies. Uh... Well, it's just, basically, we're still just doing surf charters and we're placing the place to the sort of home base in the Marshalls. And I'm hoping to get that back in the, that's obviously collapsed during the pandemic. People were stuck there and I'm sorry, but 
get things back to where they were before the pandemic and um, get catch some fish and catch some waves and go diving and and live a good life, you know, and and, and turn a lot of people. You know, I'm, I'm in the, I'm in the stoke business. You know, I'm, I'm, you know, I always tell the guests, if you're stoked, I'm stoked. If you're not stoked, I'm not stoked. So I'd rather I want to be stoked. So I'm going to do my very best to make sure you have a really good experience. And it's really rewarding making people happy. You know, the guy that the guy that comes out in the boat and, and he has the wave of his life and he's on the, the sun's going down. He's got a cold bintang in his hand. He goes, "Man, that was the best day of my life." And I go, "Job done." That is really what I live for. What our team lives for is to make that experiences for people, and it's really rewarding. Oh, that's amazing, man. And, uh, yeah, thank you for your service because, uh, mate, you're up there, Birkin Wheels, uh, Air, who are some of the other great Australian explorers. <laughs> I don't know. But, uh, you, mate, you, you're more important well, than all of them combined, in my opinion. Oh, thank you. Well, you know, as I say, um, appreciate it. Appreciate it. And, uh, and, yeah, I mean, was there anything else you want to get want to cover while we're here? Nah, I mean, no, those guys found a fucking wave between them. Useless. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Mate, that's it. Uh, yeah, really appreciate your time and uh, yeah, and your life's work. I mean, I don't know if you... Oh, fuck, I should ask you, actually, before I go. Sea of Darkness, the film, where's it at? Like, what's... Uh, what's Yeah, what's happening with it? Do you reckon it'll ever make the, uh, the silver screen? It's come pretty close a couple of times. Um the story with that is I, you know, I didn't intend to be involved with it, um, but when it when it, when it, when it was made, it was made. It wasn't what I was expecting at the time. It was a lot darker and a lot more gnarly. And I was up to my neck in the surfing industry. I was working for Quicksilver with the Quicksilver Crossing, uh, doing surcharges all the major big three companies, um, and I just. You know, I'd spent my whole life trying to get away from these people. And all of a sudden, I was being called a surfer criminal and all this sort of stuff and, and being associated with all this nefarious activity. And I just wanted to put a lid on it. And uh, so I bought the thing way back in the day. The first time I saw it, I actually forked out over $300,000 to buy everybody out. And then, then uh, you know, and then... Oblowitz went out there and put it in a million film festivals, including one in freaking Bali, which I can't believe he did. Could have cost me everything, right? And um, since then, I've had the whole. Everyone's been trying to release it, but it, it, it it's the there's so many. It's it's just thrown together with footage from other people that hasn't been paid for, that don't know about it. The music hasn't been cleared. It's, you know, someone said, "Why don't you put the Beatles in there as well and make a slam dunk, most expensive music of all time?" <laughs> <laughs> it's just a shit show, the whole thing. And I've spent so much time and effort trying to sort it out. And then, oh, Mikey puts his puts his his two bobs worth in there, and everyone just leaves the room. And so I just I've given up. Um, you know, maybe I just put it up, put it out for free on Vimeo or something. Just be done with it. But, uh, <laughs> <laughs> Fuck, it's a good film. I mean, I can I can totally appreciate why uh, some of the people in it, including yourself, are squeamish about it because it's it's red hot. Like that's why it's so good. Well, you know, I I, I told the story to to Oblowitz, 
right? It's my story. I told you about Boehm and helicopters and throwing cut nets over it and cheese my mate. It's all it all rotates around us, and it's none of his fucking business. And he decided to 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 jump into our lives and make this movie. And if he could just help me out and keep out of the room, I might be able to do something with it. But so far, it's so far every time I get real proper people to talk about it, and they want to release it, they want to make TV series out of it, want to do all sorts of things. And Michael Loblowitz comes in the room or he gets near it and they go, if he's here, we're not going to do anything. And so, unfortunately, and I like Michael well enough. He's character. He's interesting enough. I mean, he's entertaining. He's a wild dude. Yeah, he's a good bloke to have, he's a, good bloke to have a beer with and listen to him talk shit about stuff. But yeah. um, I'm, I'm just, it's been like 15 years and I'm just tired of it. Mm. Um, yeah. We'll see. One day, hey, I, my reaction when watching it was like, I, I was, you know, I was looking over my shoulder going, fuck, like, you know, th- th- this is more or less still how it's done. Um, that trade and like, yeah, it, it's, it's, it's so raw and real and, and, and also goes straight to the heart of something that was just a massive part of surf culture for a long time and, and still is like in a lot of corners of the planet. So it, it, yeah, it's fuck, man. I mean, it's a weird, it's a weird one, right? When we were in Bali in the early days, right? There was a, there was an over-the-counter drug you could buy called Captagon, right? It was like a, it was like a, <laughs> and you just go to the apotheque and you can buy them in Bali, buy them in Jakarta, and the, and you, it was like, it was like um, amphetamines, right? And you party all night. Everyone loved them, right? And they were legal. No one would go. I just read today in the in the Wall Street Journal, or whatever, where Syria is manufacturing captagons, and that there's a funding that's funding the whole regime, and the whole of the Middle East is addicted to captagons. No way. Check it out. No way. I got to get me some captagons. I got a long drive ahead of me. Yeah. Wow. Exactly. No way. That's wild. That's anyway. wild. Oh man. Well, yeah. Kudos to you, Martin. What a life, man. And uh, yeah. Yeah, well, nice, nice, nice to chat, mate. And I appreciate the the, the uh, interest. And uh, yeah. yeah. Hopefully, oh. this old fella can get back out to the mints before the end of the season and get a couple of waves. Mate, that'd be magic. I watched yeah. my son completely surf better than I've, than I've ever surfed, which is How good. Is cool. that? That's so rad. Yeah. Sick, man. Yeah. Fucking magical. Good on ya. Well, uh, yeah, thanks again, and uh, speak to you in the future. Okay. Thank you, brother. See you, mate. Okay.